Welcome to a special 58th New York Film Festival edition of the Film at Lincoln Center podcast. Today we're featuring two conversations from new films screening at the festival. First up, producer Philippe Jan Rimsha and editor Bob Morosky joined programmer Rachel Rosen to discuss Hopper Wells, a spotlight selection at this year's festival. In November 1970, two movie mavericks, one already a legend, Orson Welles, and the other on his way to mythic status, Dennis Hopper, met for an epical conversation, sharing their candid thoughts and feelings about cinema, art, and life. This entertaining and revealing footage, never before seen in full, has been resurrected in the form of this new feature, which premieres tonight at 8 p.m. at the Queen's Drive-In, followed by virtual nationwide screenings beginning September 28th. This conversation is followed by a Q&A from the opening night selection of our new current section, which complements the main slate. Tracing a more complete picture of contemporary cinema with an emphasis on new and innovative forms and voices, Ephraim Asili's first feature, The Inheritance, is a powerfully dynamic hybrid film that documents the history of Philadelphia-based Black liberation group MOVE, alongside dramatizations of the filmmaker's own experiences in an activist collective. Asili joined NYFF Director of Programming Dennis Lim for a conversation on his debut feature, which premieres tonight at 8 p.m. at the Brooklyn Drive-In, as well as on our virtual cinema, available nationwide. Get tickets at filmlink.org slash NYFF. Let's go to the conversation now. It's really kind of impossible to talk about Hopper wells without also digging back into other side of the wind um and i would like to go way back to the origins because when the other side of the wind came out i don't think i remember hearing from philip about i you know i heard about how you were involved in looking into the project and how you eventually joined forces with Frank Marshall. But I don't think I really know what your sort of original connection to Orson Welles or Other Side of the Wind was. If, if you wouldn't mind just taking us back to that. I mean, obviously no connection, certainly um, not the degree to which everybody else from the 70s as um, I wasn't born really by the time that um, Orson had passed away. Um, so for me, it came simply from a love of cinema standpoint. And I read about the project in a collection of short stories, uh, which, I, which I think was originally printed in Vanity Fair. And it was about Ambersons. And at the very end of it, there was mention of The Other Side of the Wind and about this uh, most famous film never released. And and I, this was sometime in 2000, I believe, 10, something like that, maybe a little bit earlier, maybe nine. And uh, then about a year after that, um, while at the Cannes Film Festival, I found out that um, Oya Kodar, um, Orson's uh, co-screenwriter, obviously uh, one of the leading actresses in the film and, and the lead actress in the film, within the film, Other Side of the Wind, that she uh, held the rights to Other Side of the Wind. So for me, it was these two things kind of coming together uh, in unison. Um, so I had some pre-existing knowledge of it and I came to it 
just simply curious uh, to find out what this project was, uh, what were the rights that she held, and that started me on a, about a nine-year journey uh, to then finish the film. I mean, had you had a, were you a Orson Welles fan, casually, deeply, uh, meaning like, you know, you've been on a really long journey with this material and I'm wondering whether that seems like a natural extension of your interests or whether it comes as sort of a surprise to you that you've become so involved in this world. I mean, I think casually. Um, I, I had seen, prior to that, I had seen the, the main films. I mean, I, obviously, Kane and then Touch of Evil, and Touch of Evil was my favorite. Uh, I was somebody who was really steeped in film noir. Um, I had seen Chimes. I had not yet seen Effort Fake, and, and I was an admirer of Wells, but I wasn't somebody, I came more from the European school, um, and, and that was the, the cinema that I studied and was really fascinated with. So, uh, so Wells came to me uh, much later. And Bob, you also have a pretty interesting story about how you got involved with Other Side of the Wind. So can you also talk a little bit about your relationship to Wells's cinema and then uh, your entry into Other Side of the Wind? Sure. Um, I came became involved in a little bit of a different way because um, I was friends with Gary Graver, the cinematographer who had worked with Wells and shot most of his movies throughout the 70s and until he passed away. He shot all of Orson's sort of unfinished projects. And uh, Gary was um, a friend and, and a neighbor. When, when, when I moved to my house in Studio City, I, I discovered that he was living three houses down from me. And I knew him not from the Orson Welles movies, but from the drive-in movies that I saw growing up. Uh, movies like Satan Sadists and uh, Dracula versus Frankenstein. And, and I was really into those kind of B cult movies and Gary had shot hundreds of them. So when, when I discovered that he was living three doors down from me, I went and introduced myself and also found out that he had this other side of his career where he had shot all these movies for Orson Welles. And he had this, this unfinished movie called Other Side of the Wind in his garage, and he had sort of been working on it over the years, trying to trying to get it finished, trying to finish the editing, trying to raise money to finish it ever since Orson passed away. And, um, you know, we had always talked about maybe getting together at some point and working on it. I, I was an editor, and, and uh, I was working on um, some studio movies, and I always said, look, when I, when I finish the, this movie I'm on, let's, let's, uh, I'll probably have a few months free time. Let's get together and like try to finish Other Side of the Wind naively thinking that it was would be the simple thing to just go into his garage and work on it and get it done and, and maybe do a little sound mix and put it out. I had no idea, you know, all the problems and, and lawsuits and political things and everything else surrounding the movie and every all the impediments from getting it finished. But um, but it was always, because of course I loved Orson Welles as well. And, um, you know, I'm a huge cinephile, so um, it would have been a dream project to work on. Um, Gary passed away from cancer and I thought that would be my last opportunity to work on the movie until I found out that um, Philip and, and Frank Marshall had revived the project. So I reached out to them and uh, thankfully they, um, they hired me to be, uh, become the editor, so. Cool connection. And yeah, really, it really worked out great. And, and um, um, I'm just, um, I was thrilled to be involved, um, you know, mostly because Gary was such a great guy and, and I knew that other side of the wind was, was his life work. I mean, he really wanted people to see that movie and it, it would, 
it would have put him in such a different light had people seen that movie while he was still alive. Because like I said, he was only thought of as this um, kind of guy who could come in and make it, shoot a movie in three days and, and make it look decent on a, a B movie budget. So now that I've dug back into Other Side of the Wind, it bears mentioning that there is very little footage from this Hopper Wells shoot in Other Side of the Wind. Uh, you know, there's literally just the one line about wanting to have John Wayne's audience uh, that Dennis Hopper says. So I'm wondering if you can also talk just a little bit about um, why in the process of putting together Other Side of the Wind, why you thought that this conversation didn't really fit into the final edit that you came up with? Um, well, I can speak to that first um, because Orson <laughs> had left an assembly of the movie um, and he had done a lot of work on the part, you know, sort of the introduction to the party scene. And so we knew from that assembly that he only really intended to use a few snippets of each of the um, interview subjects. You know, he wanted to basically shoot an introduction to the party and show a lot of the different party guests, um, some famous, some not famous, um, student filmmakers, documentary filmmakers, and just people mingling. And, um, you know, he, he, I think when he shot the uh, Dennis Hopper footage, he was only intending to use a few lines for first, and then he was also in, intending to maybe at some point return to a little bit of the interview with Dennis Hopper as if the John Houston character of Jake Hannaford was, inter Hannaford was interviewing him during the party. So that's why when you see the footage of Hopper, he's surrounded by the um, kerosene lamps and there's, there's no light because at that point in the movie, the power has gone out. Uh, the guests have been watching Jake Hannaford's movie, The Other Side of the Wind, but they can't watch it anymore. So um, everybody's just sort of mingling. And, and I think Wells' intention was that um, Hannaford's character was going to interview a few of these known filmmakers who were at the party. So he went, he shot about two hours of footage of, of his, in, his conversation with Hopper and then pulled out some selected lines that he was A, going to use in the, in the montage at the beginning and then B, going to shoot as, a, as an interview with um, the John Houston character, but he never shot the John Houston side of the interview. So um, we really felt that um, those couple lines were really probably only the only thing Orson intended at, at that point. He shot a lot of footage. I mean, he was a director who shot a lot and, and then used only what he wanted to use, but uh, he loved to shoot. So it, it makes sense that he would shoot for a couple hours because he had uh, Dennis Hopper there. Yeah, and, and for, you know, from my point of view, obviously it just, it did never fit the narrative arc of the script. It's, uh, you know, something that was unscripted because the whole film, Other Side of the Wind, was a fully scripted film. So for, for anything that felt like, you know, these little pieces, um, you know, it, it was fascinating as a standalone. But the, the process when Bob came on was obviously, you know, single-handed, first and foremost, uh, to put together Other Side of the Wind. Um, the secondary thing was we were making a companion documentary that Morgan Neville directed uh, called The Love Me When I'm Dead. And then we had a, a third uh, featurette documentary about the behind the scenes process. So anything that didn't fit other side of the wind was of foremost interest to Morgan. Um, was Morgan at that point said, you know, it's, uh, he was shaping his own kind of narrative and, and we were working, he was on parallel paths, but the two processes were totally siloed. Um, Morgan didn't really want to have, he didn't want to see what we were editing. Um, and so, 
I was the only person kind of crossing back and forth between the two parallel productions. And so this was something that I flagged for Morgan right away saying, I don't think that this is, you know, these, these interviews are not going to fit what we're doing with other side of the wind. So Morgan took a look at it. And by that time he had already shaped his narrative. So it didn't really fit that either. And obviously it didn't fit the, the behind the scenes. So, you know, while we were totally fascinated by this, um, you know, we, we set it aside. Yeah, and incidentally, oh, go yeah, ahead. I'm sorry, incidentally, he also shot uh, a, a pretty significant interview with the filmmaker Curtis Harrington. And then he shot another pretty long interview with Henry Jagelman and Paul Mazursky, which also runs about two hours. So, you know, he had, he had these guys and I think he just wanted to talk to them and, and shoot with them and uh, hang out with them. And, you know, only knew that he would use a very small amount of another side of the wind. But, you know, for Orson, it didn't matter. It was all about just making the movie. Well, that's a great lead in actually to my next question, which is, I mean, you have a lot of footage to watch, 100 hours or so for Other Side of the Wind. And as you say, there were, uh, Dennis Hopper wasn't the only person that Orson shot with uh, like this. I love that I just called him Orson, like <laughs> he's my buddy. Uh, but anyway, if you could both talk a little bit about when you watched those interviews in full, whether it was back then or now, what was it about this particular conversation that sort of struck you and that um, regardless of how much time passed in between that, that made you feel like it was something worth revisiting? No, no. I'll speak to that because, I mean, for me, I had quite a bit, and I, I think, you know, Bob will likely echo this. I had, you know, we had a little bit of Wells fatigue. It was a, a long process. And for me, before we even got into the edit, you know, it was uh, about eight years of me living uh, with Orson Welles and, and, and with this material. So uh, by the time we finished and the film premiered, um, I had moved on and I had two other films in production and it took about a year and a half for me to to come back to this material and and I remembered it and I remember you know speaking of it fondly and um, I had lunch in LA with a colleague of mine who directed along for the ride um, which uh, which is a, a Dennis Hopper documentary and he asked about this material and I started talking about it and I got you know I got really enthusiastic about it um, I was talking about it so passionately and and you know he asked to see some of it and that was really, you know, kind of, that brought some type of agency for me to go back, take a look at it. And, and what I saw was different. And obviously the material was the same, but in those, in that year and a half or two years, the world had changed. And suddenly this material felt very timely. And at that point, I believe I had uh, shown a snippet of it to the Venice Film Festival. Um, where we had premiered Other Side of the Wind and They Love Me When I'm Dead. And I was talking with them about uh, my project Mosquito State. So they, we already were dialoguing back and forth. And I think they, you know, one of the programmers saw maybe half an hour of the film and called right away and said, you know, we want this for this year's festival. And, you know, how quickly can you get it ready? And at that point, you know, as I picked up the phone and called Bob right away. And I said, you know, how do you feel about this? And so... That's what yeah. got us started on the journey. And I was excited because, uh, you know, unlike Philip, I was not on the movie for a year or, or eight years. I was only on the movie for, I don't know, four months or something. So um, 
towards the end of actually putting the cut together for Other Side of the Wind, you know, I really wanted to uh, make one pa final pass through all the interview footage just to make sure that we had all the best pieces for the party scenes and uh, really review because we had Orson selects, but I really wanted to go through everything to make sure we had the best pieces. And, um, you know, I put up the, the, the Dennis Hopper interview one night and it was fairly late at night, but I, had, I ended up staying late watching the entire thing. I think I was there until like two in the morning because I just thought it was like so great and interesting and, you know, so, such an amazing time capsule of that period and, and capturing both of these guys at different points of their career, but Hopper at the top of his career and Orson sort of at a low point in his career, but both guys who were, were sort of like these groundbreaking filmmakers in their own time. And um, be before we ended Other Side of the Wind, I actually put together sort of a rough cut of, of the interview from the two cameras, just so we had a, a, a basis for something in case we ever wanted to do, do something with it in the future. Because I really thought that and, and the other interviews would, would at some point find a home somewhere. And you know, I was so glad when Philip, uh, when I got that call from Philip, because I was like really happy that we were able to do something with this incredible footage. Yeah, we're we're happy to. Um, I, I had no idea that it would be a feature film that would you know play festivals and and hopefully also get a theatrical life. But I'm I'm really pr proud that it does. One of the things that I found really interesting recently. I mean, we saw this film for the New York Film Festival, and I immediately said yes. Like, you know, so such an interesting thing to watch, but I've been also interested to watch the reactions out of Venice in the sense that mm -hmm. it's such a curious piece because there are two people both playing themselves as one does in a documentary film, but also playing characters uh, in that uh, it was, there was the idea that it would be used for this film. And in that way, it kind of feels to me sort of like a some sort of weird litmus test about what people think about Hopper and Wells. So reading about uh, or reviews of the way people describe the dynamic has been really interesting because it hasn't been consistent. So I wanted to ask both of you, based on all your extensive research and what you know about the project, what you, if you have anything to say about what you think the dynamic is playing out between these two people. Well, in terms of setup, um, you know, the little bit of information that we've been able to gather in terms of you know, how Hopper you know, found, him, found himself there to begin with, um, there is an interview where he mentions that it was at Wells's invitation and that we, we know from the interview, obviously, that he had just come from Taos, New Mexico, where he was editing last movie. But, um, but this was Orson who reached out and wanted to meet Hopper, which is really interesting. Um, and Hopper, obviously, at that time, as the, kind of the king of, of New Hollywood and having made Easy Rider using the, the Wells uh, Citizen Kane model, acting, directing, writing, producing, um, he revered him. So uh, to me, this, this dynamic, um, and, and I haven't read the reviews, to be honest, coming out of Venice, um, but obviously having sat through quite you know, a press junket where everybody had an opinion and where suddenly the com it, it, it was no longer a conversation between Hopper Wells. Uh, everybody was describing it as an interrogation. 
which is which is interesting how you know how that conversation how the conversations uh now been critically perceived but um you know it's uh to me it, it really is this um this game the two are playing and i found that really interesting where um where it's hopper who escapes into the the film who calls out jake uh, more so than Wells. I think Wells is fascinated uh, by Hopper. And um, I think that that dynamic, and now, of course, knowing what happens with last movie and what Hopper's fate is, um, you know, that's really, to me, what has some of a dramatic tension in this film. Um, because you know that Hopper's about to, you know, his career is about to take a Wellsian turn. But, but you know, I, I think, uh, you know, Hopper does come across as, as sort of arrogant, but um, I think what people are also surprised is that there's a real sweet side to him. Because, um, you know, it's like when my wife saw it, she said, wow, I never really realized he was, he seemed like such a nice, sweet, humble, you know, guy. Um, and, um, you know, I think there's this, this impression of Hopper is this like, you know, you know, wild man, of course, you know, people who know him from the later movies like Apocalypse Now or, or, or Blue Velvet or, or things like that. Just think of him as this crazy, unhinged character, and I, and I think that was the impression of him a lot in those days as well, from Easy Rider and just being this Hollywood rebel. But I, I think he does come across as this like kind of genuine, almost vulnerable person, and um, and, and 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 he's trying to keep up in this intellectual game with Wells, but obviously Wells has him beat in, on a lot of levels, um, and and I think you you do feel kind of. Um, like he's he's vulnerable, and 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 he's he's not really up to the, the level of Wells in terms of the intellectual game. But at the same time, he does hold his own, and and, and I think that's what's really interesting about it. But I, I do think that he reveals as much as he does, and I think Wells obviously has to reveal a little bit about himself also to bait him into it. I think you know if you're not genuine, you're going to sense it. But I think it's you know from from the stuff that I had seen from you know other Hopper interviews from that period. It's, um, I, I do think that he's, he holds Wells in such high esteem. That's why you get this side of him, um, where you get this softness, where he wants to come across as the intellectual. Um, I think each person is bending to the other. And I think with Wells, he so wants to be hip in front of him too. Um, so it, it's interesting, um, like you know, the, the impression that each of them wants to make on the other. Yeah. Uh... I want to talk about editing. Um, it's, of course, great that it's a point of discussion in the movie yeah. um, and that it's a real difference between the two. And uh, I'm just really curious about this piece because I, I know for Other Side of the Wind, you were really trying to hew to Orson Welles's whatever you could parse of his desires and make it really the other side of the wind that Orson Welles wanted. Of course, you didn't have a similar background uh, in terms of what eventually might have happened to this. And I'm wondering how that affected the way you went in 
to make the decisions you made about what the final shape of this project would be. Meaning, yeah, were you more a uh, kill your darlings or enemy of the film kind of uh, approach? Uh, I mean. I'm usually always uh, kill your darlings enemy of the film on any movie I work on, but on this one I actually thought it, it was more important to preserve the historic record of, of what happened that night in terms of the conversation between these two guys. And they cover a lot of topics and sure we could have gone in and said, okay, we're going to make this 90 minutes. This will be great at 90 minutes. Um, here's some material that, you know, they kind of go off on a tangent, you know, we could remove this entire section because we, you know, it, it's uh, off topic. Uh, but, but, you know, I quickly realized that um, when I was showing it to various people, um, you know, who may have, might have been interested in just to get, get their feedback, different people responded to different things. Some people responded to the, the, the uh, material about, you know, Antonioni and the foreign films. Some people responded to stories about Hollywood with you know, stories about, uh, you know, Elvis Presley and, and the Fonda family. Other people responded to the, the, the more political stuff. So it really seemed that, um, you know, there was something for, for everybody in the audience and different people would respond at different, different levels. So I really felt strongly that even though it was two, two hours, ended up being two hours and 10 minutes, and Orson famously said that he felt that two hours was, was the, the point of endurance for any moviegoer and that all movies should be under two hours and, and prove that with all of his movies because um, all of his movies... We're, we're under the two-hour mark, including the ones that people think have an epic feel to them, like Citizen Kane. I mean, that was well under two hours. Um, but this one, you know, of course, Orson would probably be furious if he saw it, knowing that we released it at two hours and ten minutes. But for me, it was it was more important to keep it keep it as the historic document than to be really aggressive about cutting it down. I mean, that said, we tried to keep it visually interesting and and um, you know, it intercut the the uh, the two cameras in in the uh, the most um, elegant way possible, uh, you know. There's a lot of um, a lot of footage that um, probably was never intended to be used in, in a, a, a feature film. You know, a lot of times it was the camera camera cameraman trying to find shots as opposed to really covering the the uh, conversation. You know, if they had actually intended to shoot this as, as a um, a documentary, I think they would have covered it a little, a little differently. You know, they would have staggered the um, the camera roll so they didn't end at the same time because there are actually places, especially near the beginning, there are places where both cameras run out and there's additional dialogue while both cameramen are reloading. And uh, that was kind of a, a quandary to try to make it seem continuous. Um, and, and, then, and then, of course, there, there are just a lot of instances where there's a lot of like walking around, zooming in and out, trying to get a little piece of hopper smoking or a little piece of a laugh and those were actually the pieces that Orson had pulled out when he did his select role for Other Side of the Wind. Um, so it was more like little visual pieces as, as opposed to um, creating a, a, a fluid um, record of, of an event that happened. But um, so I, a lot of the editing was also sort of man, mandated by trying to get around technical problems and, and get, get around cuts because Orson had actually gone through the footage and, and chopped it up, chopped up the original negative to make his select rolls. So there were a lot of places where we were trying to get around um, negative cuts where, where frames were missing or, or actual footage was missing to try to make it seem smooth and, um, you know, um, fluid as possible. Yeah. And to me, just watching what Bob had assembled um, during the wind sessions, there was something 
so rough and kind of, you know, the, the aesthetic with the slates, the way that he had lined it up. Uh, to me, obviously, you know, it's, uh, that's why we have that little piece at the very beginning where Orson instructs the, the camera assistant to put that slate in and don't ask so nicely um, because Hopper just constantly has this slate put in front of his face and, and he's not supposed to break concentration. And, it's, it, and the fluidity of that conversation gives it that intimacy. And that's what I loved when I came back to this. It's even that, that grandfather clock uh, striking three times. You have a passage of time, you're there and you're there with Hopper the way that, and, and the conversation obviously goes kind of around and, and, and you know, you kind of get frustrated with him, um, you know, with Hopper not confronting certain, uh, certain questions, but, but that's the game. That's to me, that what makes it feel like a real conversation and you kind of cringe at those moments. But to me, you know, that's really where this movie shines. Yeah. You know, people talk about found footage movies and um, I mean, this is really a found footage movie and uh, you know, it's probably one of the earliest examples of a found footage movie now that it's put together. Um, you know, people would always say, Oh, Blair, Blair Witch Project was the first one. And then I would always say cannibal Holocaust is the, is the first one. And then when we did other side of the wind, it was like, well, no, Orson kind of figured this out years before that, but other side of the wind was like a fake found footage movie, the way it was constructed. But this one actually is, I mean, this was literally footage that we found was never really intended to be a feature as far as we know. And, uh, so now it's become this incredible found footage movie. Yeah. And thank you so much for finding it and bringing it to life. Um, is uh, any developments out of Venice you want to share about uh, future plans for the film or? I think that's still a work in progress. I mean, I, going into it, Bob and I were working on this in secret and, and I was actually in Europe at the time. I mean, this was, it was really a project that came together during confinement. Um, and Bob was in LA and I was between uh, Poland and France. And so as we were putting this together, um, you know, it's just our very, very small team of people knew that we were working about it. So when Venice made the announcement that this project even existed, the whole world found out about it. So, um, so we were gonna use Venice really as, as a launch for it. And now obviously the New York Film Festival as a follow-up. And, um, and so you know, we're, we're going into this right now um, with distributors circling and, and I'm you know, very excited. Um, obviously, there, there's a lot of interest in it. Yeah, it would be a great movie for people to see theatrically because, you know, it's shot on film and it's, it's um, to be, yeah, and, and unfortunately, I was not able to go to Venice, so I haven't actually seen it with an audience, but um, uh, Philip can probably speak more to that, but I, I think it would be such a great movie to, to be able to share with an audience uh, and see it on the big screen in beautiful, you know, black and white uh, 16 millimeter photography. Um, and, and not just, you know, watch at home because I think, you know, wa watching something like this at home, people will probably just not watch the whole thing. It'll be like any other interview where maybe they'll, you know, watch a little bit of it. Hopefully they'll stick with it, but I think it's, it, it's nice for uh, something like this for people to be trapped in the theater and to have to sit through and watch it from start to finish. It's a pretty yeah, interesting conversation. I agree. I, I, I agree. Especially so playing to an Italian audience, um, the Antonioni conversation, uh, I mean, it's rapturous laughter. Um, and it was, it, it was wonderful seeing it, especially at a festival um, where everybody's so well-educated on film history. 
And so that whole section I thought played really well. And, and, and sometimes, you know, for moments, uh, it's, I, I feel like the theatrical experience is such that, you know, everybody's given permission to laugh uh, because you're laughing as a whole. And, and the same thing with the little, with the Bob Dylan thing where Orson asks, you know, Bob, who's Bob Dylan? Uh, I mean, just, you know, the room exploding in laughter, uh, things like that. It's, that's, that's part of the festival, uh, the film festival process that I cherish. Well, we're sorry you couldn't be here uh, in person, um, but thank you for sharing the film with us at the drive-in and virtually, um, and thanks for joining us. Thank you, and I, I hope it played well at the drive-in. <laughs> I know it's kind of unusual for drive-in fare, but, um, but I, 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 I dream of seeing Orson's, Orson's head and Dennis, I'm not, not Orson's head, but Dennis Hopper's head giant 100 feet across on, on the giant drive-in screen, so. It's just like the end of Other Side of the Wind, right? We've gone full circle. It really is. It's, it's, it's truly the apocalypse is now. <laughs> Welcome back, uh, and thank you uh, to Ephraim Asili for joining us for this Q&A. Um, so you said in the introduction you were talking about the personal aspects of this film, and I know that there are autobiographical elements. Uh, so I was wondering if you could tease out some of those for us. I know that you, you were also part of a collective in your early 20s. Sure, sure. Um, yeah, before I became interested in filmmaking, um, uh, which I started to pursue in my mid-20s, um, I had dropped out of college after a year and moved uh, back home to Philly and became really involved in um, a lot of the activist work that was happening in, in West Philadelphia. Um, um, at that time. Um, and, you know, it was a very intense window of time in my life and it seemed very normal. There was a lot of that type of activism, collective houses and uh, political prisoner support work or food not bombs or whatever was happening. It was felt very commonplace at the time. Um, years later, you know, making short films and then thinking about making a feature film, um, I knew that I wanted to work in a long form, but I wasn't sure kind of what story I wanted to tell. Um, and I found myself thinking a lot about um, that window of time in my life in relation to more contemporary politics. And I started to think to myself, like, what would it be like to kind of make a film where I'm able to explore more contemporary issues, but through the vehicle of this sort of collective that I used to be a part of. And so I started to kind of write a narrative loosely based on that situation. Uh, but it's actually in a lot of ways quite different. Like I never actually inherited a house um, and the characters are, are very different than uh, the people that I, I lived with in a lot of ways. But then in other ways, it's, it's spot on. For instance, um, you know, we were um, a collective of uh, people of the diaspora, African diaspora, uh, from different uh, class backgrounds, different countries sometimes. Um, and so that element was really important, but the specificity of like identity and that sort of thing is totally uh, fictionalized. Um, the other part that was very uh, real was the connection with MOVE. I became very close with the MOVE organization at that same window of time and kind of wanted to pay tribute and honor that um, experience uh, because it was so generative then and still is now. Um, and so I was very much thinking kind of what, how would my 23 year old self operate in today's environment, um, living collectively almost. Right. Yeah. So, um, 
Effie, I'm just wondering if you could say a bit about how you found the form for this film, because you're working with so many different um, registers here, this documentary, archival material. Um, you have scenes that are scripted. Um, you're working with actors, um, you know, and then you, you also have different kinds of performance uh, throughout the film. And also how maybe that related to how you work with form in your short films. Yeah, great question. Um... You know, when I was making the Diaspora Suite, especially in the, the beginning, um, I really was trying to resist the idea of kind of typecasting or pigeonholing what I do as a maker. I didn't want to be thought of as a, uh, an ethnographic filmmaker or a narrative or whatever sort of camps there are. I didn't want to kind of fall squarely into one. And so when I started the suite, it was kind of this juxtaposition of narrative and uh, the documentary uh, impulse. Um, and I was interested in that. So I tried it again for the second film. Um, and then after that, I kind of moved in a different direction. Uh, but with each film in that suite for myself, um, I was really trying to develop a different part of my practice, whether that uh, be just getting comfortable shooting film itself or um, different approaches to editing, uh, working with uh, longer takes, shorter takes, synchronous sound, asynchronous sound. And I thought of the diaspora suite for myself as a sort of way of working out my visual language, the way I approach uh, editing, the way I approach cinematography, uh, but that I was very deliberately kind of working that out, trying things out and say, okay, this film works this sort of way, I'll bring this forward and I'll leave this behind. And um, at a certain point, I also knew that I wanted to stop making films in, in the suite. It happened probably around the fourth film. I had the sense that I only wanted to do one more. And the reason for that is that I think there, um, that it's easy to fall in a tendency in short film and experimental film, especially where you kind of make a film every year and you send it around and there's a rhythm to that that I think can be very comfortable. But at the same time, I think it can be restrictive in terms of expanding what one's practice can be. Um, and so at a certain point, I, I pulled away and started to ask myself, well, what about the diaspora suite could work in a long form? And what have I not done in a while that is still appealing to me? Um, and, you know, I, narrative was something that I, um, I mean, I think every filmmaker, whether they admit it or not, or, you know, was interested in making some sort of narrative film in a somewhat conventional sense of someone, you know, back and forth dialogue, what have you. Uh, however, the question is, you know, the dialogue and that sort of a thing. Um, I just forced myself to kind of go through that anxiety and just sit down and, and write because I, I very much felt that one of the things that um, my practice could use was a, a more, not to say literary form, but um, being able to work with language um, in a much more deliberate way and also using the form of, say, a script to give structure um, in some sense. At the same time, um, I was very attached to everything that I learned in the diaspora suite. So kind of going in, it was this question of how do I bring everything from the diaspora suite with me, but at the same time deal with narrative in a way that makes sense. Um, a third sort of secondary concern in kind of going from short to feature is how do you get funding to make a feature? I mean, it's a very big question. And initially I found that most of the people that seemed like they could have helped really wanted a conventional sort of script. Um, and so I tried to push it in that direction and I just 
found it impossible formally to do what I say what I wanted to say and work with the sort of three act structure. But by forcing it, I think it also made me uh, think deeply about what I could keep from that structure. Um, from there, um, you know, there's a bit of improvisation. Uh, there's all sorts of uh, elements that, that go into it. Um, the other thing that I'll say that is a big factor in the form is what I look at in terms of watching films. And I try very hard to not make distinctions between types of films or um, national, you know, cinema of different countries. And as far as I'm concerned, it's all available. Um, I don't know that that kind of approach works in a short film, but I was certainly interested in the long form to say, well, you know, um, I can use found footage, I can, you know, have direct address, I can have a scripted sequence, I can improvise uh, at points. Um, and so those were concerns, you know. Um, I just want to say a little bit about location and um, that was probably the most difficult part of the transition and that I wanted to shoot this film on location in Philly. Um, I was unable to secure the resources to do that. However, I was offered a black box studio to, you know, work, build a set in, which I initially didn't want to do um, because I'm so attached to location. but accepting that challenge um, really made me think about the black box studio as a material location, not just some place where I make some sort of fictive reality, but as a location in and of itself and trying to embed that into the work itself without it being too um, reflexive in a way that kind of takes you too far out. Um, and so really taking the location of the studio, what does it mean for someone like myself making work that I make to operate in that space and being okay with letting that bleed into the, the overall structure. Right. Um, was the plan always to shoot on film, which I know is something that you've, you've done with your shorts as well? Uh, absolutely. That was another one of the sort of things that you send a budget to whomever and they first eye roll you get is when you have this thing where you're shooting it on film and it's like, um, but that was a, a must, a must for me. Um, Something that I'll add in terms of my form and structure is that as a filmmaker, I am also a photographer and that's the tool of the camera, the instrument of the camera is very much a part of the work for me and how that operates. Um, but that's something that I'm doing myself, which is one less sort of filter that the work is going through. But I think that allows me to work in ways that feel more organic because I can just kind of pull the camera out um, and shoot. Um, and so for me, shooting on 16, kind of, it, it, it was a must. It cost me a lot in terms of being able to do multiple takes and all of that, but um, I just didn't think I could make what I wanted to make and not shoot it on film. Yeah. For me, the materiality of the film kind of goes along with the, <clears throat> the tactility of it in a way that's like, it's, a, it's so much a film about objects in a way, like totemic objects. You see the chest of books, at the start and then, you know, there's records and photos and posters. Um, it's like such a wonderfully annotated film in a way. It's like, are, are these all um, objects that are, I assume they all have meaning to you and are they all from your collection? And can you talk a little bit about the way the film sort of kind of traces its own, you know, kind of canon of um, radical, black radical cultural, you know, politics? Sure, absolutely. Um... Sure, we have, we're talking about Fluid Frontiers a little bit earlier, one of my films from the Diaspora Suite. And when I was shooting Fluid Frontiers, I had already conceived of the inheritance as an, an idea. Um, 
In fact, I'd, I'd never worked with a synchronous sound camera or large format 16 millimeter camera. So in terms of the sort of trajectory of the work, it was like, you know, I should try to do this in a short form before I think of expanding it. Um, and in making Fluid Frontiers, I was trying to find a way to deal with my own attachment to the materiality of of the books and the content in that film. So these radical ideas, it was all very important. Um, but at a certain point I realized that I can't really separate them from the material object uh, for myself. It's not enough just to read these poems online, but I have this most need to have the, the, the material there. And from that, I started to kind of think of uh, the inheritance. Um, going back to working on a set, uh, this idea of working on a set, um, Suddenly, I have uh, what, for the first time in my sort of life as a filmmaker, uh, feels like a truly blank canvas. The studio is just space, right? And so suddenly, uh, you know, where do the walls go? What colors are they? And then from there, you get into, well, what does the table look like? What's on the table? Um, which at first was terrifying. Um, and then after I kind of got into it, I suddenly found it very empowering. It's like, well, I can place every single object in this space. And I spent about a year kind of going through my personal collection, but also looking around and sourcing more things. And so when you look at that set design in the film, uh, yeah, everything in there was either something I already had or that I would pick up at a flea market or use bookstore and very much built the set one piece um, at a time. Um, yeah, from the ground up and so everything was very much like kind of deliberately selected or at least i have like a, a box of objects and we're doing the scene and i might make a small arrangement but that's kind of um how it went and um and again that is also embedded in the diaspora suite in some ways earlier on i was more interested in kind of working in my relationship to say object art and painting into the films but moved away for a variety of reasons but this idea of the blank canvas having the studio suddenly brought all those things, you know, um, back into the picture. And so I tried to uh, work with that in uh, as deliberate a way as possible. Right. I want to go back to what you were saying about <clears throat> this, you know, this period of your life predating your your turn to filmmaking in a way, but and, and you're you're active in politics, you're an activist, and I'm wondering if you know, how you see the relationship between your activism, your politics, and your practice as a filmmaker? I mean, that's a big question, but. Yeah, that's, that's, that's the question. I mean, I think that's the big one right there. Um, it's a really difficult question um, in that I'm not sure, they're totally related, uh, but they're by no means the same thing in my, my opinion. I, I would, no matter what type of film, how didactic, say, or informational it might be, I would never really consider um, making a film as a form of, of, of activism. However, I think it can be quite helpful uh, in relation to, to activism. And so for me, activism is a person-to-person -person, um, direct attempt at, at communication of a more specific I, I, idea. Um, and so um, activism for me is something that revolves around very specific politics or platform and a political agenda uh, that needs to be executed. Um, for better or for worse, I don't know that art is totally compatible with that type of uh, 
thinking. Uh, it's hard for art to be totally didactic. Um, it's hard for art to uh, have a very specific agenda and at the same time leave space for the viewer to, to, to think. Um, and so these are tensions that are always interesting, me, interesting to me in terms of how I'm making art and I'm always making it with a, making a piece or particularly with the inheritance. I, it's almost like I want activists in some ways to be the audience for work like this um, as well as others. But at the same time, I would never say, well, this is this in and of itself is a work of activism because it has ideas uh, that are radical or, or progressive. The activism would come before or, or after or simultaneous to that. And so, you know, if there's activism in relation to it, uh, I feel like that will happen um, later or it was happening, say, in some ways on set while we're working. But I don't really think of works of art as activist work. Um, but I also just, I was fortunate enough to have done very concrete activist work prior to making film. Um, and so I didn't feel like I approached film uh, with a need to kind of use it in a way to, um, I'll say, compensate for something I wasn't doing politically. Um, you mentioned, um, you know, your influences and in having very broad Catholic tastes when it comes to cinema. And um, it was interesting for us because we actually invited you to submit a list of films that you wanted to program because you, you have um, uh, selected a film for our revival section, um, Ivan Dixon's uh, The Spook Who Sat By The Door. But you also sent us a longer list um, and it was interesting to see, you know, I think you had um, Spike Lee, No Better Blues on it, uh, and Godard. Um, Maybe it was two or three things, uh, and I can't remember what else. But like, it was interesting to see that those are, those obviously are are films that you know maybe are from very different um, different worlds, but are also different ideas of like how how cinema can be political and have a politics. Yeah, ab ab absolutely. You know, I mean that for me again, it, it, it it's very important. I mean, I think. The thing for me is this, is that if I, I felt like certain direct approaches to activism for, for, for me in terms of filmmaking were genuinely effective, like that was the change that needed to happen, that's what I would do. Um, but my experience of, of film watching and filmmaking is that the more sort of specific a work is, the shorter the shelf life of said work is. And what's important is that there are works that we kind of revisit. And so I think, you know, when I'm looking at a work like Mo Better Blues or two or three things, and I think um, one of the films that I always, I keep coming back to that I believe was on that list was uh, Paul Schrader's uh, Blue Collar. Uh, these films for me don't age um, because they're, they're, they're dealing with their politics in relation to the human condition in such beautiful and complex ways that the politics is just one one aspect of it, but that's always the case. It's never just about the one the one politics. So you know, in a film like Blue Collar to explore uh, you know the lives of these workers, um, at, with the factory kind of being the, the, the backdrop and a lot of the location, it it, it heightens that the intensity I think for, for me and kind of allows me to kind of keep thinking about these these other issues like you know, union organizing or um, class difference uh, within factory workers in, in, in terms of, or uh, racial disparities within the unions, these sorts of things. But if this is a very specific thing about that, I don't know that I watched that film four and five times. And so uh, I try to kind of 
not necessarily copy any technique or anything like that, but I am fascinated with the films that I have to keep watching. Um, and so um, when I'm making, I'm thinking always about, you know, trying to give reasons why a film should be revisited while I'm making it, if, if you know, you can do that. At least that's, mm -hmm. that's the goal. Right. And I think just to wrap up, I think another way to think about a political dimension of a film is also the context in which it is received, right? And I'm just, you know, wondering what you make of, of I mean, I saw this film earlier in the year, um, you know, and I think the the current moment of, of reckoning over um, systemic racism and police brutality and, and you know, um, the conversation around anti-racism is um, different now than it was uh, um, six months ago. So, you know, I'm just, I'm just wondering if what you make of, of this, this context into which the film is emerging. Yeah, it's, it's really, um strange um, and, and um, hard to process actually a little bit at, at, at the moment. Well, I haven't watched the whole film too recently, but the last time that I did, it was you know, since things have been happening uh, um, in, the, in the news. And, um, and I couldn't escape the feeling that it was made for now, like this moment, the problem being I had made it a, you know, a year ago and thought of it even years before that. Um, but yeah, it, and so to me, there's a sort of like, yeah, in terms of the timing of the piece, it's a little bit um, uncanny, but at the same time, um, I think, you know, it's just that I'm responding to things that have always been happening um, and that, that, um, that the sort of underlying politics of the piece and of, you know, the world we live in are having a moment in the public eye. However, you know, um, these issues were going on all along. And so, um, I, it's awful that, you know, the film is timely for these reasons. Uh, at the same time, um, as an artist, um, you know, um, I don't like to think that it's my job as a, an artist to respond to the world uh, in terms of something happens and therefore I have to have a response. I think if it's not already sort of embedded in what you're doing and your approach, uh, then maybe that is, is, is the problem. I shouldn't have to wait for someone to die in a very public way to be thinking deeply about, uh, you know, human rights and what it means to be a human being and have respect, et cetera. And so these are underlying things that are always there. And then, you know, the sort of time we're living in is sort of um, just a very interesting sort of prism to look at it through. But, you know, I think it's just the ebb and flow of things. And it's a film that's just coming at um, a really interesting time. Yeah. yeah. All right, I think we're going to have to leave it there, but uh, I want to thank you for this wonderful film and, and for taking the time to speak with us. So, Effie, thanks so much. My pleasure, and thank you all for watching, and thank you, uh, Dennis, and the Center for, for, for showing it. It really means the world to me, and uh, it's truly an honor. You've been listening to the Film at Lincoln Center podcast. Our opening music is by Steelism. You can subscribe on iTunes, Stitcher, and Spotify. Film at Lincoln Center is a nonprofit arts organization based in New York City and supported by individuals just like you. For 50 years, we've been dedicated to supporting the art and elevating the craft of cinema and enriching film culture through the programming of festivals, series, retrospectives, and new releases, the publication of Film Comment, the presentation of podcasts, talks, and special events, the creation and implementation of artist initiatives, and our film and education, curriculum, and screenings. To learn more about what we do and support Film at Lincoln Center by becoming a member, visit filmlink.org.
That's F-I-L-M-L-I-N-C dot org.